If you will, open your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter, Second uh, Peter chapter 2. Uh, this is the third sermon in our really short sermon series uh, from the book of 2 Peter. And so we're going to uh, look at the entirety of chapter 2, so we'll begin our reading in just a moment in verse 1. Again, 2 Peter uh, chapter 2. Uh, obviously, we've just completed, uh, and, and as uh, uh, I was continually uh, corrected, I think we wound up uh, saying the Luke-Acts series was somewhere in the realm of three to four years uh, in uh, its extent, and uh, there's, there's a good to that, and, and I like that, uh, but I also like doing short series. And it allows you to kind of see a, a beginning, a middle, and an end in, in kind of a, a short time frame. And so uh, we'll get a, at least a very good survey of this uh, short but very weighty and I think very relevant uh, word from the Apostle Peter uh, written certainly uh, to those that were his contemporaries 2,000 years ago. But it's a word for us uh, today. It's, it's God's word. And uh, we can be confident uh, that we can know uh, the will of God in regards to our salvation. We can know with great assurance that we are indeed uh, those who belong uh, in and among the people of God. And we can live with joy uh, in uh, that certainty. Now, if... Um, You've been at North Clay for a while, and particularly uh, if you come uh, to a Sunday school class or a Wednesday night Bible study uh, that I teach, one of the things that I mention fairly frequently, I guess because I teach the Bible, and the Bible mentions it quite frequently, so, you know, how can you miss it? But I often make reference to the fact that there are a great number of very pointed warnings in regards to false prophets, false teachers, uh, false doctrine, uh, that it is a danger to the people of the church. And so uh, since Jesus spoke of it, uh, since Luke recorded both uh, uh, the warnings of Jesus and the Apostle Paul and Peter, since Peter spoke directly uh, to uh, these issues, since John spoke directly to these issues, we must speak frequently to these issues to warn us and to, to help us have clarity, to be discerning. We often use that word, to be uh, discerning uh, in regards to uh, that which is uh, the truth and, and that which is uh, an error, that which is false, that which is ultimately damaging uh, to uh, the people of God. And so uh, I encourage you, I challenge you, I exhort you regularly to cultivate, to nurture uh, discernment, to, to, to grow in your understanding of the Word of God. And that takes effort. That takes time. It, it will not occur in a vacuum. If, if you do not devote yourself to being a person who is gaining daily the knowledge of the Word of God, you will not, because you cannot be discerning. You don't have the tools for discernment. And so we take the Word of God. You hear me speak often about not only having a, a biblical theology, that's important, we study the Word of God and we develop a theology, an understanding of God and His world that is derived from that Word. And from those two things, we cultivate a biblical worldview. That is, we look at our life, we look at life in this world through the lens of the Word of God. Now, how many times have you heard me say, if the Bible defines your view toward an issue, you're not entitled to any other view? That's it. It's settled. It's a settled issue. And so, we, we must constantly be cultivating a biblical understanding 
of all things and, and be able uh, to recognize both uh, the issues related to truth and error as they arise in the church and then the issues that arise in our culture. And we have a culture that is uh, bent on promoting absolute lies. That, that which is absolutely divorced, it is separated, not only from biblical truth, but again, remember what we talked about in our family series back in the, the spring from Genesis 1 through 3. Not only are they they're, they're ripping their lives apart from any biblical understanding of life, they're divorcing themselves from reality itself. And so, of all people, Christians are the most re- realistic. We live in a real world, and it's only in a real world that was entered by the one true and living God, the real God, that a real gospel is accomplished through which what? Real, sin- real sinners are saved from sin, death, hell, and the grave. And so these things are vital to the church. And so let's look this morning at what I'll call a timeless warning to a perpetual problem. Verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then... The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters which they're ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm for Them, the gloom of utter darkness, has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved for for it. After they, for if they, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, 
through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to return back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Pray with me. Father, once again, thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that uh, you have so worked it that we have confidence in the power of your word, the truthfulness of your word, that, that indeed you use it to work in our lives, to root out that which should be rooted out, to expose that which should be exposed, to, to instill that which should be instilled in our lives. It's all by your grace. It's all done for your glory, but it's also done for our well-being, that we may know you and we may know the joy of eternity, even that would break in into our lives, into the here and now. As we study these things, may our lives be so transformed that we would never be the same. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I've raised somewhat of a a problem in speaking to this issue that Peter raises here in regards to false teaching, false teachers. It is um, a problem for the individual believer. It's a problem for those who would pastor uh, the church. Uh, That is that we certainly seek to inform the people of God for the sake of maturing the people of God, of protecting the people of God, and even multiplying uh, the people of God. And as we instruct you, there are so many different things that we uh, must consider, and we want to avoid in uh, discussing with you, our people, and even going out into the world, uh, being perceived as being uh, uh, shrill, uh, of being strident, of, 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 of being uh, uh, so, such a, a person that, again, nobody can stand to listen to you for very long because you know everything and no one else knows anything. And so we we truly do not want to be perceived that way. But there is an urgency of the moment that we find ourselves in. And so as we seek to speak to issues and to be sure, it, it, it really does seem like every week, at least in terms of an individual or a church or something, something is brought to my attention in regards to what do you think about this? And it's really hard to to think about all those things, and given everything else that's going on, preparing to stand before you each week. But because of the time in which we live, the technology that we have available to us, there is an inordinate amount of information, both good and bad, that can come uh, your way. And so uh, while I cannot filter through it all uh, for you, I hope I can equip you to be discerning, to filter through uh, these things so that, again, you, you will not let false teachers creep into your realm, creep into uh, your family, and, again, to do its devastating and uh, destructive uh, work. And so we want to model a sense of confidence that we speak the truth, a sense of uh, certainty, a a sense of expertise, a a sense of, again, uh, these things are important as to how we live. We're not just, you know, debating these uh, irrelevant issues, you know, the the old proverbial, the the number of angels that can dance on the head of the pen type things that that we talk uh, in regards of things that do help us to both understand and to preserve, as Jude writes of it, the faith, once and for all, delivered to the saints. What is he speaking about? This, this body of doctrine, these truths that we find 
from Genesis to Revelation, the Word of God, we want to preserve that and the proper understanding of that Word so it will be passed on to successive generations so that they too may be saved. And we're always only one generation removed from the disappearance of the truth. And so it is always a crucial time. And so this is relevant for us today. And so first of all, in verse 1, and it, there's, I don't think I could ever say that there's a week that I don't enjoy preparing for preaching. Now, there are weeks that are difficult sometimes. I'm going, gosh, I'm not even sure how to get into this and how, how, how to communicate it. But I thoroughly enjoyed, and I've enjoyed these few weeks that we're spending in this short epistle. And again, because it's, it's heavyweight stuff, and it's also highly relevant. And so he mentions here, first of all, what I've refer to as the perpetual problem, that is, it's pervasive and it is persistent. After explaining to us this great good news, he has spoken to us about the certainty, the assurance of our salvation, and that it is rooted to the absolute confidence that we may have in regard to the Word of God, that this Word is sure because God's men, these prophets, they spoke as the Holy Spirit inspired them, and they got it right, and we have it right, and we can live with confidence confidence. I often point out what I sometimes refer to as the great buts of the Bible. Well, there's also bad buts in the Bible because this is great good news. Our confidence, the reality of what the Word of God is, it is God's Word transmitted to us unfailingly accurately for our well-being, and we may have confidence. But even then, whether the then is the old covenant people of God, whether we think of it as the then from our perspective of the contemporaries of the Apostle Peter, or whether we think of it right here, and right now, there are those who promote lies. They are those that promote destructive heresies. And so the but is there because standing in contrast to the great truth regarding the revelation, the testimony of God for your salvation, there are also not those that are carried along by the Holy Spirit. There are those that are false prophets carried along by the spirit of apostasy. And so, false prophets have plagued God's image bearers since the first false prophet, the fallen angel, Lucifer, the serpent, went into the garden and so enticed and seduced Adam and Eve that they believed the lie. And through that false prophet and through that false teaching, the entirety of God's creation fell into chaos. And so this spirit of false teaching and false prophecy is indeed the, the spirit of apostasy. And you can draw a line from the serpent in the garden through the, the murderer Cain all the way to the Babel generation and, and, and their confession their catechism. Hey, guys, what are we going to do? We're going to make a great name for ourselves. That's what we're going to do. And at the root of false teaching is that I will be great. I'm going to promote something that ultimately will do what? Elevate myself, not honor God. And that spirit ran all the way into the pre-flood generation that we have the preacher of righteousness, Noah, warning of God's judgment to come, and I'm quite sure the multitudes are saying, no, no, this guy's crazy. This guy's crazy. There's, there's nothing to what he says. And on and on it goes. If you read, even beginning in the Exodus accounts, all the way through the desert, all the way through the entrance into the promised land, the establishment of the monarchy, uh, the golden age of the prophets, the constant warning is that these false prophets are among you. 
They are there to deceive you, and ultimately, they will destroy you. And let me say it kind of another way. Now, there's a sense of self-destructiveness in the embrace of false doctrine, whether false prophets, false teachers. But remember, too, there's the element of God's warning. I will destroy you. I will destroy you. Okay? And so serious uh, business. I don't know if it's a stylistic type of thing or if he wants to draw a, a strict line. He speaks, first of all, the false prophets that, again, were parallel. Uh, they were contemporaries of those that spoke the truth, that were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They existed among the Old Covenant or Old Testament uh, people of God. And so they were among the people, okay? And there will be false teachers among you. D different words, false prophets, false uh, didascali, pseudo-didascali, those that promote false doctrine. Is he making a, a hard and fast distinction? Or, or, uh, I'm not sure exactly, but... Their goal is the same. It is to undermine the truth of the Word of God and destroy uh, God's people. And so there were false teachers in the Apostle Peter's day. We can read the book of Acts and we see the different things that went on there, the issues uh, that uh, they faced, the, the Judaizers, if you'll remember from the book of Acts, uh, uh, the, the, the Gnostics. All of these different types of, uh, of, of heresies were infiltrating, they were permeating uh, the, the church. And so it was happening then, and I believe the warning is not just a historical statement. In other words, Peter's not saying, in, in my day, in, in you know, 60 A.D., that, that we have a problem. I think he's saying that the church until the time that Christ returns, will always be plagued with these issues. And the church, the people of God, may, must be ever informed, ever vigilant, ever diligent about standing against, about recognizing those that promote error. Now, in, in my lifetime, and I want to be sure that you understand that my time was not 60 A.D. That was the Apostle Peter's time, okay? I was not alive in 60 A.D. My time is right now, okay? But in my time, in, in my brief uh, now into the seventh decade life, the number one threat to the church going back to my childhood, my teenage years, was the liberals, uh, they became known as progressives. They didn't like being known as liberals, but they were uh, progressives. And, and they permeated the Southern Baptist Convention, and, and, and they destroyed what, what is called the mainline denominations. They destroyed the Presbyterians, they destroyed the Methodists, and they destroyed the Episcopalians. And there's kind of a rebound, a recovery effort in those denominations. And they almost destroyed the, the Southern Baptists, okay? And so that was the most prominent uh, kind of uh, false uh, teaching that, that I was familiar with. There, there, there's kind of offshoots and other things that we, we could talk about. But they were so devastatingly effective in introducing into the church various types of false teaching. And I remember my first real personal encounter with a real live liberal in the church. You know, and, and I'm, you know, I'm in my 30s by this time. And some very prominent members in the church we attended made sure that I understood that the Apostle Paul really had a problem with women and that, that you cannot rely on what he said, that, that certainly he did not write what he wrote under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. And, and again, the old cliche is uh, these liberals had what's called Dalmatian theology, that the Bible's inspired in spots, and I'm inspired spot to spots. But your inspiration for your spots are different from the inspiration of my spots, and how I interpret the spots that I think are inspired are different from the way I, you interpret the spots that you consider. To, I mean, it's a mess. It's a complete mess. Now, those guys are largely gone, and we got other problems in the SBC. We got plenty of them, and I'm not going to even get bogged down in, into that. But across the broader church, and it infiltrates every church, okay, is the extreme element of the charismatic movement called the Word of Faith movement, 
and it's everywhere. And again, it's this name, you know, they can call it the name it and claim it, the prosperity gospel. Uh, the most notorious of, of those uh, heretics was people like Kenneth Copeland and Benny Hinn. And now uh, men like Joel Osteen have repackaged, homogenized, and kind of reblended it so it can fly under the radar and pass for orthodoxy. But it's still there. It's still a heresy, and it's still incredibly uh, destructive, okay? And so that's what uh, these guys uh, do. They, they do it secretly. They're sleeper agents. Remember, uh, uh, in 911, they talked about these sleeper cells that slipped into this country, and they were awaiting uh, the time at which whoever was their leader would tell them, now I want you to go do what we had planned, what you had trained to do. And so... These people infiltrate the church to the appropriate time to unveil their destructive heresies. And to be sure, nobody walks into the church and goes, Hello, I am your uh, local false teacher. And if you follow me, and if you believe me, you'll go straight to hell. Nobody does that. They do it secretly. They are subversive. And we must be ever vigilant without being, you know, overly strident without, without being overly mean-spirited at some level and trying to hammer everybody, you know, dot everybody's spiritual and theological I's and cross everybody's spiritual T's. You know what I'm talking about. But uh, we do need to be discerning because they're destructive. Now, here's the interesting thing, and how I wish I was taking several weeks with this, but, you know, we got, we got to move. They secretly introduced the destructive heresies there in verse 1. We're still in verse 1. There is no giggling at North Clay. Okay? There, there, there's, there's no place for giggling at North Clay. Now, now listen, that, that's not quite a destructive heresy, but it's out of order, okay? Now, these false teachers, notice how they're described. Even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. What's, what's the discussion there? Are these false teachers genuinely converted? Are there those who have been converted who have lost their salvation? Okay? Or are they just, and again, to use the, the pop phrase that I don't agree with the concept are they just carnal Christians? Are they just messed up Christians, you know, and just bless their heart type, type Christians? And so what, what does he mean? How, how can an individual be described as one who has been purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ out of the slave market of sin? How can they be described as this and then as one who will undergo destruction? And I think, again, it, it's an analogy. It's an illustration. One of the most powerful pictures of what salvation is is that our Lord Jesus Christ entered the slave market of sin, and through the shedding of his blood, he purchased, he redeemed us out of that slave market of sin. And th so that is a picture, that is an illustration of salvation, and as it applies here, it is simply those who appear to have been purchased by and pledged their allegiance to their master, but yet they prove themselves to not truly be aligned with their master, surrendered to their master, and so ultimately they're not saved. They're those that will be destroyed because they are indeed unbelieving, okay? And notice that they bring upon themselves swift destruction. Now, th th again, that's an interesting thing. I I've called the names of some very prominent. You recognize the names I called out. Okay, you've seen them on television. Okay, they smile, they have a Bible, they've got a, a nice suit on, big churches, thousands of people. They, they fly a jet because Jesus wouldn't have rode a donkey in this day and time. He would have rode in a jet. You know that. It's biblical, okay? That was sarcasm, folks. Be sure, let's be clear there. But they've been around, they're older than I am. So what does Peter mean by swift destruction? And, you know, it, it may mean this, that their souls have been so destroyed that their consciences have been so seared, that, that their hearts are so hard, 
they are absolutely, in terms of any practical way that we would understand the gospel and its application of salvation, they are gone. They, they, they have been hardened under destruction. And, of course, the unbeliever's what? He is under condemnation even as we speak. So that's, I think, what's going on there. And these individuals, they, they follow their sensuality. In other words, this false doctrine appeals to our own fleshly, sinful, despicable uh, desires, to, to, to worldliness, to, 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 to wealth and, and to pleasure. And so, obviously, their message appeals not to the witness of the Spirit within the heart and mind of the believer, to, but to our own fleshly uh, desires. And so, because they are greedy, again, the, these false teachers, so many of them, have become literally multi, multi-millionaires. I, I mean, they, 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 they rule over legitimate empires, okay? And, and the, the bigger the lies, the, the bigger the empire grows, okay? And, and they're, they're greedy, and they're exploiting people. They're, they're destroying people with what? Their false words. They're, they're words that stand in contradiction uh, to uh, the truth, and so, what? Their condemnation is sure. Their condemnation is certain. And so, now, he wants to illustrate that, that affirmation there in verse 3, that their destruction is certain. It's sure to come. You don't worry about it, okay? Their destruction is coming. And so, he engages in historical examples of how God has dealt with those that persisted in their rebellion against him. How God has judged the ungodly. So he offers these three pertinent examples. Now, those of you that, that know a little bit about uh, this particular book know that there's some obvious parallels with the book of Jude, a little further back in your Bible. And scholars talk about, well, what's the relationship? Who borrowed from who? Or what did they borrow from? That's beyond the scope of what I want to do, but just note that, that they say essentially the same things here uh, in, this, in this section, and it, it is very interesting that they do that. Uh, I will simply say they were both writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and that uh, God had them write what God wanted to say, and he buttressed it by both of them saying essentially the same type of thing uh, in regards to how to illustrate that our righteous God, our faithful God, will do exactly what he's always said he would do. He will deliver those who trust in him, and he will judge those eternally and severely. He will judge those who persist in their rebellion against him. And so he begins with this reference in verse 4 to the angels. Now, this is pertinent and, and relevant, and we, again, deeper subject that we can get into, but kind of the question, where did Satan come from? Where did evil come from? Uh, the problem of pain, all of these type things are, are, are related, but it, it seems to be that, that Jude says something similar to this, and I think it's probably an illusion uh, if you want to make, we don't have time to study it out, but you can make a note. Isaiah 14, 12 and following, Ezekiel 28, 14 and following, that in, in prehistory, in eternity past, that the chief angel of heaven, Lucifer, one that seemed to have all the, the pomp and glory of, of the, the highest order of angels, chose to rebel against God. Now, how did this evil enter his heart? Well, that, that's a great question. Uh, I think Jonathan Edwards answers it best. It's simply the matter of God withdrawing his excellence, his greatness, uh, his presence, and it, evil is a matter of deprivation, okay? Now, God is sovereign over that. God ordained that evil would enter. God evil entered our realm uh, so that he would be glorified in the work of redemption. It was purposeful, but we also can't say that God is the author of evil, that God caused Lucifer to, to do this. It remains a bit of a mystery. But this is the illusion, that when these uh, rebellious angels followed Lucifer, Lucifer's lead, that seemingly about a third of them were judged, they were condemned, they were cast out of heaven, and they're held in hell even as we speak now. 
From that example, he moves to a, a human example of the ancient world, and he picks up on that story in Genesis chapter 6 when God judged essentially the entirety of the human race because of their wickedness through the flood, delivering a few through the ministry of the man Noah, that he built an ark, and God preserved a believing remnant in that ark, a picture of the church, a picture of the gospel there, that ark. And then he goes on here uh, to speak of uh, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Uh, that God saw that great wickedness, He was grieved and appalled by that wickedness as he was grieved and appalled by the wickedness of the pre-flood world. And we know the story of the fire falling down and destroying these great but incredibly wicked cities. And so, be confident. Be sure that you know both that evil will receive its due penalty, its due reward, and that God will deliver us, deliver you, the one who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God will judge the evil, and in a parallel fashion while judging the evil one, will save those who believe. And in some sense, it is through the judgment that falls on the unbelieving world that he delivers his people. The ultimate picture is what? That at the cross of Calvary, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, the judgment that is the holy, righteous wrath of God fell on the one that represented us, that was our substitute on that cross, experiencing fully in his person the wrath of God, and as that wrath was exhausted on the Lord Jesus Christ, we were delivered from the just penalty of our sin. We were delivered through the judgment of God. So God is faithful to judge, and he is faithful to give salvation because it has been accomplished through the judgment that fell on our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he knows how to rescue. Look there, verse 9. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Again, what do evil people do? They, they, they are absolutely under the possession of sensual pleasure, their own sensual pleasure, and they despise any type of authority. I think one of the basic uh, constitutional uh, aspects of our fallen nature is we hate authority. I I see it in children at the earliest ages, right? All you people, even grandparents can say, yes, we see that, okay? All right, yes. They, They do. And let me tell you something. I don't know who, well, I do know who the oldest person is here today. And he doesn't like authority either. Okay? You don't either. So don't look at me spiritual like you've conquered your rebellion against authority. It's always a latent issue within our lives. Is it not? It is. Yes. Okay. So, and we see, and we could parallel the warnings, the judgments pronounced from Romans 1.18 here, these defiling passions. And we live in a world, and we live in a culture, that I fear is going to be known by our seduction by those that absolutely celebrate defiling passions to our own destruction, to our own judgment by God. Now, bad news, judgment by God. Good news, deliverance through the Lord Jesus Christ. So, the Lord knows how to judge. He knows how uh, to deliver. Moving forward into verse 10, the, the precise explanation of uh, these people. They, they are arrogant. Now, and I don't, again, don't mean to beat up on, although he deserves it. Uh, 
this whole business with Andy Stanley, uh, the, the latest, latest craziness. And here's the problem. At least 10 or 15 years ago, all the megachurches wanted it known that we're locked arms with Andy Stanley. He is the man. Seriously. I'm, I mean, I, I would hear this. You know, they, they, they wanted it known. We're using his material. I, I, I had a friend that pastors a megachurch this week, not in this city, okay, and said we, we had to throw his stuff away. We threw it out. Said so, some of it was okay, but because of the, the stands he's taking, what he has uh, proposed, and, and so they're, they're the arrogance of men like him that think they know better. And again, uh, Peter tells us that the, the angels aren't as bold as these false uh, teachers are. And again, he reminds us in verses 12 and 13 of their certain destruction. They're, 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 they're like irrational animals that, that, that live only by their instinct. How, how, how do you catch a fish? By understanding their instinct. That if you put a lure in the proper place, their instinct demands that they grab that lure. And what's in that lure? A hook. And you reel them into their destruction. And these people are just like that, living on the basis of fallen instincts. And so they have followed the way of evil. The, the historic example is, is Balaam. And, and I think this is obviously a place that I love, saying something kind of uh, sarcastic and ridiculous. But, but again, this guy was so stupid, reminds me of the match game, dumb Dora was so dumb, Yes, yes. So, Balaam was so dumb, and I'm spiritual these days, so a donkey rebuked him. Yeah. How dumb do you have to be for a donkey to rebuke you? That's these cats. That, that, that is the description of this, this. And so, look, verse 17, they're waterless springs and mists. Imagine putting in your garden, and you look off on the horizon, and there's a cloud coming, and it promises a rain shower to water your garden. And day after day, and no water comes. And day after day, oh, there, there's a cloud. There's a cloud. There's a cloud. There's a cloud. Water is coming. Water is coming. And that what? All of a sudden, your entire crop is ruined. In other words, these guys look promising. They look nice. They sound nice. They got big churches. They live in big houses. They drive fancy cars. The whole nine yards. They look really good. But they're just like a cloud that fails to produce. They're just like a stream that has dried up. They're pointless. They are devastating. And they, they corrupt, verse 18, their, their message appeals to our basis, to our sensual passions of, of the flesh, and it appeals to those who are weak. It appeals to those that, that maybe are immature in the faith. And folks, the tragedy is there are people that are immature in the faith that have been professing to be Christians for 50 and 60 and 70 years. Okay? You need to suck it up, buttercup. Okay? All right? You need, you need to get down to business. Okay? Because it's dangerous. That's a dangerous place to be in. And so they, they entice uh, the weak and they make promises. No, they promise freedom, but they're slaves. They're slaves of corruption. And then these people, when they believe these lies, they're enslaved to these lies. Again, to their own destruction. So they pray. And again, remember Peter's picture in 1 Peter 5.8. Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And remember, wild kingdom, baby boomers. How does the lion get the antelope or whatever it is they chase after? They find the weak. They find the sick. And they jump on him. And they destroy him. And so that's the way false teachers do. I've, I've told you before, and I've, I've, I have been at the house of a widow immediately after the death of a loved one. And the phone rings, and it's the stinking Jehovah's Witnesses. And they're praying 
on the weak. Yes, that's the type people these people are. Verse 19, their perilous condition. They're, they're slaves. If you went back, you could review Romans 6 and Romans 8. The distinction between a believer and a non-believer. Do believers sin? Yes, we do. Somebody completed the liturgy for me last week, and I appreciate that. Was that you, Randy? So I think it was, yes. Okay. Thank you for completing the liturgy. Yes, we struggle with sin. But the di- distinction, by definition, we're not under slaves, sin's mastery as believers. Okay? We do not live according to to the sinful flesh. The the mind of the flesh is hostile to God by definition. That is the unregenerate person, okay? And so they're slaves to this corruption. Now look at verse 20. Watch this. This is important. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse than the first. Again, we've alluded to many times, 1 John chapter 2. They, went, they were once among us. They went out from us. By going out from us, they proved that they really weren't one of us. He's describing the spirit of the Antichrist, the spirit of apostasy, the spirit of false teaching, the spirit of Antichrist. They're, they, they all go together, okay? And so the, these people arise within the church, okay? That's a problem, okay? Uh, a church that becomes weak doctrinally will provide fertile ground, for the raising up of many of those who will be false teachers, okay, that will do devastating harm within uh, the church. And so they are at a terrible place. They have some knowledge. Hebrews 6, they've tasted the goodness of God, but they're not ultimately regenerate. They're not saved, and they fall back into the same sins. And here, and as we've said, these people, and it's the same problem we... It's, it's the same problem kind of, a, of unregenerate church members. Those that get inoculated with the gospel, they get that small dose of the virus that their body forms, their soul forms an immunity against the truth of the gospel, and they can't get the real thing. And I think that's a primary problem in the church in America today. There are too many people been inoculated with the gospel, and they've never gotten the real thing. And that's why false teachers are so prominent in the church in America today. And so notice this, verse 22. We've got to wrap it up. We're going to do it quickly. The, what the proverb, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Don't you love when the Bible pre- presents these beautiful pictures? Okay. Uh, I, I, I was going through the airport last night, and I went over to fill my water bottle, and I walked by the water fountain, and somebody had thrown up right there in the water. And I'm like, ah, what a beautiful picture. Don't you love to be reminded of such lovely things? A dog returns to its vomit. It's, it's, it's true. They do. And a sow returns to its wallow. What's he talking about? How many times have you heard me say, people do? what they want to do. The problem is what they want to do. Okay? That's just true. Now here, and let, me see, let me just kind of remind you, let me break it down for you real quickly. For many years, I had trouble reconciling the work of Martin Luther with the work of Jonathan Edwards. Luther spoke of the bondage of the will in regards to the necessity of God's sovereign operation in salvation, that we were in bondage to sin. Uh, Edwards comes along 200 years later and starts preaching about the freedom of the will, but getting to the same point, the necessity of a sovereign work of God in accomplishing salvation in the life of the believer. Wait a minute. The bondage of the will, the freedom of the will, what's going on here? Edwards had the genius to distinguish between the will and the nature. The will is the ability to choose. The nature, that is our desires, is that which drives the will to choose what we choose. The problem is our nature, our desire for what we choose. Now, this was alluded to earlier. Y'all take me to lunch today. We get a beautifully glorious cheeseburger. Melted cheese, little onion, little tomato, little lettuce. And they bring out the condiments. They bring out the ketchup, God's creation for sure. 
They bring out the mustard, God's creation, absolutely. And they bring out this nasty stuff that's straight from the pit of hell. And it smells like smoke. Called mayonnaise. Some of y'all think you're cute. Every once in a while, I'll find a jar of Bama mayonnaise somewhere left for me. It ain't funny anymore. Now, how many of you know what condiments I'm going to put on that glorious cheeseburger? Because that's according to my nature. It's consistent with who I am. I hate mayonnaise. I don't want it in my refrigerator, much less on my hamburger, on my cheeseburger. It's disgusting. Same thing. You got a lion. He can reach a, 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 a bowl of uh, hay or a bale of hay and a pile of red meat. Which one's he going to eat? He's going to eat what's according to his nature. He can. He, he, he's, got, he's got a mouth. He's got teeth. He can chew up that hay. It's just not according to his nature. I mean, I can put that mayonnaise, God forbid. You, that might cost you your salvation. I don't know. I don't, you know that's, boy, that's a close one, putting mayonnaise on a hamburger. But based on who I am, I do what I do. Right? Based on who you are, you do what you do. That's the point here. That these false teachers, they reject the truth and they promote lies because they're liars at their core. They're children of the devil. He is the father of lies. He was a liar from the beginning. That's the spirit of false prophecy, false teacher, apostasy, the antichrist, all of those things. They all go together and they resonate in the lives of these contemptible and condemned people. And we should be warned. We should be discerning. Discernment begins what? With knowledge. A knowledge that's got to be worked for. It's got to be cultivated. He's got to nurture it. All kind of different ways that we would cultivate within ourselves the sure knowledge of a sure word that is God's guard for us against that which would destroy us. Let's pray. Father, once again, thank you for your certain word, your powerful word, the powerful word that you have absolutely promised would not return void. And so, Lord, I pray that through the power of your spirit that is within all who believe, that there would be a, such a witness within us, oh, that we would be committed to the discernment of the truth of the Word of God, that we would recognize that which is not truth. And Lord, whether it's in the church or whether it's in the culture, we would stand against it. That we would know how to speak the truth in a world filled with lies. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.